Hello and welcome to the Nutmeg Podcast, where we'll aim to bring together different commentators, experts and personal finance enthusiasts to tackle the topics to help inspire you to feel financially confident, investment savvy and empowered to reach your goals. I'm Catman, Savings and Investment Specialist at Nutmeg. And I'm Gary Shepherd, Investment Writer, also here at Nutmeg. And in this episode, we're discussing inflation or price rises following astronomical increases in everyday items from food to petrol and energy and for businesses in essential inputs like raw materials and shipping costs. We'll look at what's driving these soaring costs, asking what can be done to ease inflation and assessing how bad things could really get. More importantly, we want to unravel what exactly inflation is. Finally, we'll be talking to today's guest, Brad Holland, Director of Investment Strategy at Nutmeg, about the impact of inflation on investment markets. The Nutmeg podcast is available on Spotify, Google, Apple and Pocket Casts. If you like what you hear, please like, share and subscribe. And as ever, do feel free to contact us with anything you'd like us to talk about in a future episode. I'm going to start by talking about burgers and it's relevant, I promise, because if there's one product that's exactly the same all over the world, no matter which country or town you're in, it's the Big Mac. McDonald's signature beef burger is made to the same formula, whether in Mombasa or Madrid, and it's available today in 118 countries. Back in the 1980s, when McDonald's expanded across the globe, it was one of the few recognisable corporations and people either loved or loathed the fact that wherever they were, there was an American burger chain with identikit products. However you feel about the company, it became useful to economists who created the Big Mac Index as a global measure of prices. Since 1986, The Economist magazine, which came up with the idea, has been tracking the price of a Big Mac in different countries across the world to see how it changes over time. It's known as Bergonomics, and it's now included in economic textbooks and has been the subject of dozens of economic studies. Bergonomics, eh? Well, um, I haven't had a Big Mac in a while, Kat, um, but I am something of a chocolate fiend. And I'm pleased to say there's a measure of inflation for those of us with a sweet tooth. Uh, Cadbury's makes a frog-shaped chocolate bar called a Freddo. They've been around over 90 years, so I'm sure many of our dear listeners would have tasted some froggy goodness. Um, Why am I mentioning chocolate bars? Well, no, I'm not being sponsored by Cadbury's. Campaigners have used Freddo's as a barometer of the cost of living and have argued that UK minimum wage should be £18 per hour if it had kept up with the real inflation rate that is as measured by the Freddo Index. That's because in 1999, when the minimum wage was £3.60 an hour, you could have bought 36 Freddos from an hour's pay at 10 pence each. When the minimum wage was £7.50 and Freddos had gone up to 30 pence each a few years ago, you could only purchase 25 of them with an hour's pay. So the Freddo measure of inflation tells us that inflation is about purchasing power as well as price rises. Absolutely. And as we know, shoppers can be incredibly price sensitive at times of high inflation. And brands can be reluctant to increase their prices, even if they need to pass on higher manufacturing costs to consumers to maintain their profit margins. This has sort of led to a phenomenon called shrinkflation, 
which is where products get smaller but retain their previous price. And I've got some bad news for you, Gary. The data shows that over 200 products have shrunk in size in recent years, many of them chocolates. The number of Maltesers, M&Ms and minstrels in a standard bag has reduced. Oh, I thought it was just my hands getting bigger. Um, well, I, I guess the problem with focusing on individual items um, when looking at inflation is that demand for some things outstrips supply. And that, of course, pushes up the price. Um, maybe an obvious example was during the early days of the COVID pandemic, um, when hand sanitizer suddenly became very expensive as we all wanted to keep the germs away. And what about that very British obsession, property prices? Since 2017, house prices have risen 22% in England, but wages have barely risen at all. As someone in the process of buying and selling a house, this is something I am oh too familiar with. Of course, we had the benefit of house price increases for the property that we're selling, but sadly that's been outstripped by the downside of the property increase with the price that we are buying. But it does make me think about the people who are buying my place. So my home was my first home and it's going to be their first home as well. I bought it just under five years ago and completely in line with the country average data, the price of the property has increased by 21% since I bought it. So it's arguably a lot tougher for first time buyers now than it was when I bought five years ago. It's become a bit of a cliche to say that generation rent can't afford a deposit on a home because they spend too much on avocados or more recently Netflix subscriptions. But I think it's time to drop that cliche for good. The price of the humble avocado has actually fallen on average. Uh, it was 95p each a year ago and it's now just 87p. But the fall, that's a fall in price of 8% at a time when prices and everything else are pretty much rising. Um, flicking through the old economics textbooks, uh, which I do like to do at a weekend, I'll be honest. Um, one of the earliest recorded examples of untapped inflation that comes to mind was the tulip mania of the 17th century. Um, this was when there was a huge craze for tulip bulbs as a sign of affluence in the Netherlands, and they became a valuable commodity. Prices of the rarest bulbs actually went up to six times the average salary. That's an example of when price inflation in something then becomes about an investment. The coveted item becomes a, seen basically as an asset, and it could potentially be a store of wealth. We have that with property around the world and definitely a case in the UK. And that provides an incentive for producers to create fewer of them. In the case of homes, house builders saying that they can't, you know, produce as many and that keeps prices potentially artificially high. Yeah, um, well, well, I guess it's one thing if we're talking about tulip bulbs and chocolate bars, but when there's price inflation in something essential like homes and demand hugely outstrips supply, um, I mean, I guess there could be a moral element to inflation as well. Exactly. And China has been home to some pretty rapid price inflation in seemingly really random items in recent years, such as garlic bulbs in 2009 and 2016. Their prices rose rapidly and that was a huge shortage. Garlic had become more desirable than gold or even property. There have also been speculative bubbles in items such as fermented black tea, mahogany furniture and preserved walnuts. It has parallels with tulip mania, but in China's case, one of the reasons this has happened is people are wealthier, often for the first time in generations. Put simply, they have more disposable income in a way their parents just simply didn't. 
and they want to spend it on things that they could hold value or derive wealth from in the future. Mm, that's really interesting. Um, I mean, today around the world, people's disposable income is being eroded by high inflation. We all know that. Um, UK prices are rising at their fastest rate since 1992. And in the US, inflation is at a 40-year high. Um, an extreme example um, of inflation today might be Turkey, um, which has a mixture of high energy prices, interest rates cuts, and a slide in the value of lira, which have all contributed um, to inflation hitting almost 70% in April. Um, much of this worldwide inflation stems from the global econ economy reopening after the COVID shutdowns. Um, factories have reopened and there's been a huge surge in demand for some products, which has meant prices of raw materials used by manufacturers have risen. Um, a good example might be cars. Uh, more people have wanted to own a car since the pandemic kicked off and there aren't enough computer chips around to meet demand for new vehicles. Um, to put that into context, a modern car can have around 300 chips installed across various gadgets. Um, not sure if you're a driver cat, um, but you may have to wait a year now at least if you want to purchase a brand new car from one of the big names. I am Gary and actually the price of filling my tank on the weekend was a somewhat eye-watering experience. It's definitely up there at the £90 range, which is a little bit sad. But as you say, the, the sort of wait for an electronic car or an upgrade might be a while, so I might have to get used to it. The war in Ukraine has pushed oil and gas prices higher and drivers will be noticing this when they fill up. But on top of the conflict, there have been problems with shipping and supply chains. So it's been harder to get goods from where they're produced to where consumers need them. This is one of the contributing factors for the chips in cars, but is especially a problem with food. I mentioned that avocados have fallen in price. Well, avocados are an outlier as other everyday foods like meat, mushrooms, fruit are all gone up by double digits. The people on the lowest incomes are going to be the worst affected because a higher proportion of their income goes on food and energy. For example, someone earning £10,000 a year might have to spend 90% of their income on living costs, but someone earning £50,000 a year might only spend 20% on those essential items. High food price inflation has been responsible for huge social upheavals throughout history. Think of the famous phrase attributed to Marie Antoinette, to head of the French Revolution, let them eat cake, she reportedly said, when told that people couldn't afford bread. More recently, one trigger for the Arab Spring is thought to have been high grain prices. But there's another aspect to inflation inequality in Britain today. Chef and food poverty campaigner Jack Monroe has been tracking the prices of supermarket budget ranges, and she found that the cheapest rice that she could buy locally had jumped by 344% while the cheapest pasta cost 144% more. She also said that supermarkets have reduced the number of products available in their budget ranges while expanding premium food ranges. Mm, yes, that's really interesting. Um, I think these are isolated examples, um, but 344% is so much higher than the UK's official inflation rate, which as we speak is still, still in single digits. Absolutely. And it's kind of one of the reasons that Munro argues that official inflation indexes understate the impact of inflation on the poor. She got the, the ONS, that's the Office for National Statistics, to agree to change the way that it calculates inflation in the future. It's going to use data from supermarket checkouts about the things that we're actually buying. 
that is a big step forward indeed. Uh, as the way um, statisticians, um, not you just the got that word to say, <laughs> work out uh, the way statisticians work out inflation hasn't changed that much. Um, now I've looked into this, and they actually compile a list of seven hundred products that are commonly purchased, and then they literally go to the shops each month and check the prices of these in a number of different retailers. Um, the basket of products has changed over time. Uh, for example, cassette tapes have been removed and smart speakers added as we've moved to streaming. Um, though, of course, if you are listening to a recording of this on an old C90 tape, I do salute you. Um, and then the experts also have to factor in higher importance of some staples like bread and milk, which are bought more frequently than, say, electric toothbrushes. So the price of those has a bigger weighting in the calculation for the overall price index. And we've also got to remember that the age and demographics of people are going to have an impact on inflation. I'm not entirely sure that many people in their 20s are buying cassettes, if I'm honest. And it does mean that kind of individuals end up with their own inflation rate depend depending on what they're spending their money on. Young people, for example, have to fund higher education. And in the U UK and the US, education costs have risen far higher than property prices, even with those rates that we were talking about earlier. While parents are subject to childcare costs, which are among the most expensive in Britain compared to other places around the world. So a single rate of inflation for the whole country is going to main, re remain a general guide rather than a full picture. But it's still important that official figures reflect the cost of living as accurately as they can, because the rate of inflation is used to change state benefits, to increase train fares, water prices and other bills and benefits. So it does have a real impact on people's everyday life. The statistics body only had one inflation figure, CPI or the Consumer Prices Index, until 2011. But since then, it's created others which it publishes monthly. The Retail Prices Index, or RPI, and CPIH, which includes housing costs for people who own the home that they live in. And they all come in at very different le levels. And this does matter because benefit payments such as universal credits for single mothers and state pension go, by, go up by CPI, which is lower than RPI. Meanwhile, RPI is used for increasing rail fares or the rate of interest on student loans. Meanwhile, the official measure is CPIH, but that says inflation is much lower than the others. And at a time we're in, when we're experiencing the worst cost of living crisis for a generation, that's really troubling. Now, if we all agree that too much inflation is a bad thing, then what can, what can we actually do about it? This is the big task for central banks, such as the Bank of England, whose remit is to maintain monetary and financial stability and keep inflation low and stable. Uh, the Bank of England has a target for inflation at 2%. And if the price rises are at least one percentage point higher or lower than this target, then it must answer to the government as to why this is. Well, with UK inflation currently at its highest level for many years, I imagine there are quite a number of questions coming the way of the Bank of England. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, to be fair to the Bank's Monetary Policy Committee, um, they have been pretty open about the challenge, with inflation a global problem, not just in the UK. Um, the bank has acted, though, uh, with the most effective tool in its armoury being the raising of interest rates. In early May, the Monetary Policy Committee raised interest rates by 0.25% to 1%. Um, this might seem like a low figure, but it's actually the highest rates have been 
at since February 2009, when we're in the midst of recession of the great financial crisis. Ah, there you go. You've said the recession word. But you are right. The bank has a really tough task in balancing the threat of inflation with not starving off economic growth. By raising interest rate, it increases the cost of borrowing for banks who in turn pass this on to their customers, both consumers like you and I and businesses. The higher cost of borrowing then works to slow demand in economic activity. For example, if you wanted to take out a bank loan for a new car or a business wanted to borrow money to buy new equipment for a factory, you might think twice if interest rates are rising and you must pay back more for that loan. However, the Bank of England has to be careful. If it raises interest rates too high or too fast, then the slowdown and the economy could lead us back into recession. Yes, I mean, the major central banks around the world are currently in what we call a rate hike cycle. With the biggest of them all, the US Federal Reserve also putting up rates in May, while indicating there will be more upward moves um, to come. Um, While I don't think there's many people predicting a return to the mid-1970s when inflation peaked in the UK at around 24%, um, inflation remains at very uncomfortable levels for us all. Um, This has put policymakers into action and they are likely to gradually keep using small incremental rate rises to gradually slow demand and therefore slow price rises back to more manageable levels. Yeah, and the opposite scenario would during an economic downturn, such as during the peak of the COVID crisis in 2020, when the Bank of England cut interest rates to an all-time low of 0.1% in an attempt to get people spending, as lockdowns seriously curtailed economic activity. Yes, things can clearly change very quickly. It's the reopening of the global economy after the lockdowns that has in fact been a big contributor to the inflation we're seeing today. Um, For example, with Uh, factories around the world slow to reopen and get manufacturing again, that's actually caused supply blockages while demand continued to climb. And so price rises have resulted. With that, I think it's time um, to introduce our guest for today, uh, who has, like a ninja, very stealthily worked his way into uh, the studio here. Uh, Brad Holland, Director of Investment Strategy at Nutmeg. Uh, Welcome. Um, You're well-placed to talk about inflation, um, why inflation is such an important indicator for investors today, and more on what's causing this inflation. Welcome, Brad. Well, hi. Yeah, and uh, thanks for having me. So, Brad... um, Let's start with a simple one. Why is inflation such an important consideration for investors? Well, maybe it's helpful to think about inflation as just one of the several costs investors face when we're familiar with fund charges and and management fees and transaction costs, as well as taxes we may need to pay on returns. These are all explicit and highly visible costs. Inflation is more of a hidden cost. It just creeps up on you. Before you know it, the cash you had sitting in the bank a couple of years ago won't buy you the same amount of goods and services anymore. Your, your purchasing power has fallen. And as an investor, what we would like as a, as a minimum is that after all these explicit and hidden costs are taken into consideration, we, we still have at least the same purchasing power as we did last year. Um, so it seems investors need to think about how much risk they're willing to take in order to achieve investment returns that will more than compensate for all these costs, right? Well, yeah, that's that's right. 
So Brad, could you give us some insight into what's actually causing the current inflation and also, if anything, what we can learn from similar situations that we've seen in the past? Well, there are really two types of inflation. It's cost push and demand pull inflation. Well, cost push inflation is when the supply chain has become more expensive. That's whether that's wage growth um, costs or, or other material input costs. The listeners may have heard that the Bank of England governor, Andrew Bailey, was, was much criticised in the media for suggesting that the people need to show restraint when asking for wage rises. That didn't play too well, did it? But, but it does highlight this cost-push inflation argument. And obviously the supply chain issues experienced as we have reopened after COVID have increased cost-push inflation also. I mean, the most cited episode of cost-push inflation in the past was the 70s, uh, the oil price shock, and, and that led to high wages growth and inflation well into the 1980s. And central banks had to, to work hard to remove it from the system. And so if that's cost-push inflation, what about demand-pull inflation? Well, well, this is driven by too much liquidity around the economy, a bit too much, you know, effervescence. Demand for goods is exceeding the ability of firms to, to get the supply. And this is where central banks have the most power to, to keep things on an even keel, because by raising interest rates, they can reduce demand for, for business investment, for, for cars, for houses, for example, anything that needs to be funded by borrowing. As demand comes off, demand pull inflation pressures ease off. This is by far the most common type of inflationary pressure and the one policymakers are best placed to deal with. Okay, so many of our listeners will be invested in equities, Brad. Um, what does inflation mean for this asset class? Well, when we think of inflation as a cost that needs to be compensated by investment returns, we can, we can see straight away that the, the higher your return, the more likely it is you will beat inflation. Um, so equities have the higher long-term returns, um, for example, compared to bonds, uh, because they have higher, higher risks. And those risks mean that in the short term, we can experience investment losses such as we are at the moment. But the investment rule of thumb is that in the long term, the higher risk globally balanced equity portfolio, for example, will deliver higher average long-term long-run returns. Um, so it's an uncomfortable fact then that to ensure you beat inflation in the long run, um, you need to take more equity risk. And that can, of course, uh, cause you losses in the short term. Uh, yeah, that is the uncomfortable truth. There's no risk, no return. Uh, but there, there are other things to consider for equities as protection against inflation, especially in the, the short to medium term. So, so companies have this capacity to, to maintain profit margins when, they, when, when, when their costs increase. They just put up their prices. So in, in that way, equities have a, a natural protection from inflation over the near to medium term. Uh, in the investment industry, we call this a, a natural inflation hedge. Um, and what about bond markets? Do they have that natural inflation hedge? Um, how are they impacted by rising inflation? Uh, conventional bond markets don't have that natural inflation hedge. The, the coupon you receive from bonds is, is fixed. And if inflation rises above that coupon yield, then you will be hit with a very large inflation cost to your purchasing power. But bonds are more the asset you want to hold when inflation falls, not, not rises. Um, bonds, however, do remain a useful asset to hold in a, a multi-asset portfolio where the, the characteristics of equity and, and bond returns are blended 
to, to give a more diversified, lower volatile return. But there are always going to be times when one asset or the other will not be performing well. A lot of governments issue inflation-linked bonds, and these pay you the going rate of inflation along with a fixed real return. And they can be a better inflation hedge than conventional bonds. I, I say can be. It's not a guarantee, and it depends on a few technical factors. So that's a bit about governments and what they're doing. We've been talking today about how central banks such as the Bank of England and the US Federal Reserve can raise interest rates to try and dampen inflation. Are there any other ways that they can influence markets with their monetary policy decisions? Uh, well, yeah, they can also influence what we call um, animal spirits, uh, the animal spirits of financial markets. Markets move like pendulum between being overly optimistic and, and overly pessimistic. And, and central banks, by their actions, can influence these expectations. Um, if the central bank increases interest rates, this creates a, a less liquid, less free and easy environment, and markets become more cautious well, it's the other way around when they reduce interest rates. It's like they are saying to the market, hey, we're here to lend. We're here to lend you all the money you need. So is that what central banks describe as forward guidance? And kind of if it is, what does that actually mean? Why is it important? And should we listen? So, so yeah, following on from what I just said, uh, if central banks say, for example, hey, we're here to lend you all the, the money you need, well, that's a message that the market can take on board. What the markets now know is that the central bank is supporting the economy, and that's a situation that favours risky assets. Uh, the interesting point uh, is that uh, central banks don't actually have to have yet done what they say they will do. Uh, the financial markets will move prices as though they have already started. So, so central, central banks use forward guidance as a, as a communication tool, and, and since financial markets are always pricing in new information, when central banks give new forward guidance about its thinking, markets get on and, and price it as if it's been done. So, Brad, um, obviously you and the investment team at Nutmeg are constantly keeping up to date with the latest data um, as it's released. Um, what, what, what's, what's this telling you about inflation and the inflationary outlook in the coming year? Do you, do you think prices will continue to rise or will things maybe calm down a bit? Well, the level of prices, you know, I say the level of prices is stepping up due to both these cost push and demand pull forces I was talking about before. But uh, the cost push is mainly the, the energy and the food price rises we've seen. The, the demand pull is from the fact that you know, supply chains have not recovered from their COVID shutdowns. Indeed, you know, China is still very much uh, a, uh, in shutdown and it's a major global producer for many global markets. Um, but, but one year's price increase, one year's level increase, however painful, doesn't make inflation. We, we, we would need to see these prices rise repeatedly year after year to cause inflation. And, and central banks don't expect this to happen, and, and nor do we. So, so we expect the inflation data to peak in, in 2022 and fall back towards something over 2% in future years. Thank you, Brad. Um, that is fantastic. Um, as things change, uh, hopefully we can get you back in uh, to give your expert view once again, if you've enjoyed it here. I hope you have. Oh, I have. It's been fun. <laughs> um, it's been great talking with you. So um, thanks very much for coming over to the studio and joining us. 
Yes, thanks very much, Brad. And thank you to our listeners. We really enjoy putting this podcast together and we hope you have learned a few things along the way. Uh, it's been really great fun. If you like what you hear, please do share and subscribe and feel free to contact us via the Nutmeg social media channels with any ideas or themes you'd like us to talk about on a future episode. Um, we're off now to the shops to check out the cost of confectionery. So until next time, thank you very much for listening. As with all investing, your capital is at risk and the value of your portfolio with Nutmeg can go down as well as up and you may get back less than you invested. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance and the topics discussed on this podcast are intended for informational purposes and should not be relied on for financial advice.